This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Mr. Jim Moon. And we're going to talk about The Nightland, a novel by William Hope Hodgson, first published in 1912, 102 years ago. Um, and it's uh, one I've heard about, I had heard about for a really long time. And then I read uh, The uh, the um, House on the Borderland. And I heard that this one is a lot more inaccessible. And <laughs> right, it's very difficult uh, prose. But I think that, like a lot of people who do get into it, uh, I think it's a pretty great book. And maybe... Uh, a kind of great flawed masterwork. Absol- what do you think? Absolutely. I mean, it's one. Of, uh, I mean, I, I'm ashamed to say I had a nice. I found a nice big um, 70s paperback edition of it mm-hmm. that Panther in the UK had published. They have uh, a nice cover. Yeah, there, I think. Yeah, and um, I got hold of uh, around the same time. I think I've got the Ghost Pirates, uh, a Karnaki. Mm-hmm. Collection and a house on the borderland. I read the other three and I didn't. And I started reading the Nightland and kind of at the time, I was kind of ah, oh, this is you're not hitting the spot and it's long, it's difficult and it's kind of. I'll I'll have another crack at this when I'm more kind of in the mood for it. And I didn't get back to it until now. Oh, <laughs> I well, really ashamed to admit, really, yeah. So I've heard about it, you know, for years. And I kept thinking I'm really going to go back to it, but it's such a. I mean, the paperback itself, you could club. Well, club a, club a night hound to death with it, you know? <laughs> and it's kind of like, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, it's not so much a commitment to read. It's like, you know, planning an assault on the north face of Everest. It was that kind of... Yeah. And having read a bit of it, especially I know a lot of... I've since, doing my research with this, uh, I've come across a lot of people saying, um, skip the first chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did I send you uh, an article about that? Um, about why you shouldn't skip the first chapter? Yes, yes, I saw that. So. Okay. I, 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 I don't, you, you should skip the first chapter, actually, having read it. But I can understand why that is such a stumbling block for so many people. <laughs> um, but I, I think I think you need it to make sense of the style the rest of the book is written in. Yeah. Um, There's something missing, I think. I, I think whatever version, you know, no matter what, Anything else? I think there is definitely something missing, and and that is, the, it's the same thing that's in uh, the House on the Borderland, which is, hey, we found this document, mm-hmm. right? Because this is published in 1912. Well, William Hope Hodgson is not the the character in the first chapter, right? He's not the unnamed protagonist um, in either life he lives. So where does this document come from? I I want to see like a, a couple of lines. You know, we were clearing out an attic. <laughs> we found this uh, in the estate of a man whose wife died very young. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is his journal or something. Yes, like yeah, I I felt that as well. In fact, I, I felt it'd be really nice to kind of um to have an edition of this sort of made up and sort of printed in a big old book. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Sort of like a handwritten font, and then leave it somewhere, and uh, see, <laughs> see, you know, just try to, as an experiment to see what people's reaction were to read this, um, you know, this chronicle. 
Because I think the way, I mean, it's one of the big criticisms of the book is the style it's written in, this 17th century that never was mm-hmm. kind of style. I know technically that's strictly accurate, but I have to say, I mean, having read 17th century literature, I think Hodgson does a great job in um, mimicking kind of the uh, the style and the ticks oh, and the rhythms yeah. of it, but without writing it in proper archaic prose, because then that would really be impenetrable. <laughs> You'd really struggle. It is, it's fairly impenetrable as it is, but exactly, you want to get... Yeah. You know, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at the Gutenberg text, and basically what we've got is giant paragraphs, which are giant sentences. Mm-hmm. Right? And each of the sentences almost always inevitably starts with either and, or yet, or now. Mm. And and is like super predominant, Right. And this happened, and blah, 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 Big long sentence, and blah, 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 blah. So it's like he's recounting, it is all. It is like a dream. You know, you first this, then this, then this, then this, and more, 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 more. And it goes on like that for the entire text. No dialogue at all. Not a single quotation mark anywhere, as far as, maybe in the first chapter of this song. I don't even think there's any there. Um, and, uh, and two named characters, Murdath and Nani, right? And that's it. And they're both the same person, sort of. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that's why it's kind of, this would really work as, say, if you did it in a a facsimile of an old journal, you could pass it off as the real thing. Mm -hmm. Because I think, um, having read a lot of Hodgson's other writings, which, um, are a lot more contemporary and sort of they've they've got a very sort of modernist snap to the way he mm-hmm. spins a yarn. That you know I'm really very convinced that you know, he wrote it in this way, in this almost like clumsy way, in you know to be very documentary. It's kind of you know he, I think he when he was sitting down to write the Nightland, he was kind of composing it as. Like a journal, like he was yeah, the character. It's book. Yeah, it is a found footage book, absolutely. And um, and you know, I think it you know it'd work a lot better, probably better as a a serial. My one regret is you know, I mean, I left myself three weeks to read this, and that wasn't long enough uh, <laughs> because it is a book to kind of savor. But if you read a lot of it in one go, it's it's like drinking a lot of port. Mm. Or eating sort of a rich Christmas cake. It is just, mm-hmm. it's dense and heavy and too much at once just, you know, overwhelms you. And particularly I if you read. Two weeks yeah. myself. And, and it was, it was not quite enough, as you say. Um, I, I spent a lot of time on it and I, you know, at some points, you know, there's no action happening. For, I mean, not that there's a lot of action anyways, but I was telling Scott, who couldn't finish the book, uh, in time, he, you know, you can skip uh, large portions of the second half of the book because it's mostly kissing. <laughs> you know? well, yes, that's true. That's true. Just lots and lots of kissing and a little bit of spanking, mm. uh, but mostly kissing. Yeah, yeah. There's a, I mean, I, I, I mean, it, it, is, it is flawed, and it, kind of, a lot of people say the flaw is the way it's written, which kind of, I kind of take exception with because I think. As we said, it makes it this proper kind of like found footage sort of feel, and it feels it feels like a real account in its mm-hmm. kind of roughness and the and the minutia as well of kind of 
that you know, you know, day fifty-two, I slept for seventeen hours. I had, right. I had, had eight. I drank. I slept, and you know, I think that works really well, and it gives you the real sense of kind of like of being on the journey, the hard practicalities, things that adventure shows normally gloss over. Mm-hmm. And it gives it attention and interest of kind of, you know, he's been going for 17 hours, he really needs to find somewhere he can shelter, but there's nowhere and it works well. What I do take is where it is flawed in the writing is, as you say, in the second half, the love story, I think, um, does start bogging it down because he can't do anything without kissing his, uh, his maid. Oh, <laughs> uh, and then washing her feet and then probably kissing her feet, then kissing yeah. her again. And, <laughs> and it's kind of, that's when it's that's when the style gets over his over his mouth and Mm. over his ears and you know and then playing the coquette with uh you know turn away now and Mm. she hasn't even started watching yet Mm. um there's a that is i think as you say sort of a a bigger mar on Mm. the on the book Uh, and i know that some editions, at least some, maybe all editions, uh, delete large portions of that. Mm. Which, you know, uh, I was reading the uh, 1970s release uh, from, uh, what was it, who's the publisher? Br- Ballantyne. Yes, because uh, Lynn. Yeah. yeah, the Lynn Carter introduction. Mm. And it was saying, you know, this, this is not the complete book, right? <laughs> We've deleted. Uh, some of the, uh, excessive kissing and, uh, and uh, I'm wondering why do you think, I mean, this is not something, I know that Hodgson, you know, he's not averse to romance in his stories, but mm. I've never seen it anything like this in any of this. I, it's, it's almost not even romance. And one of the, one of the reviews I was reading of actually a different book was, was very much about, you know, this is about uh, lost love in the way that Poe would be about. But I never thought that Hodgson was such a romantic that he's, he was mooning over this woman um, so much. Well, what, uh, what, what do you think's going on there? Well, the thing is, I, I, I find it difficult when I started digging into this. Is kind of, there's this whole um, thing come up by um, uh, Sam Gafford, one of the mm-hmm. leading Hodgson scholars, where, where Gafford um, claims... That um, it's often it's often thought Hodgson wrote his novels in the order they were published, but um, he he got all some uh, letters of Hodgson, which seems to suggest they were actually written in the reverse order, hmm. and that by 1905 Hodgson had four novels in the bank, wow. all of which he couldn't sell, um, and then eventually they did sell, and they actually were published in the reverse order he had written them. And that actually makes a lot of sense, uh, which he refers to the publication order, um, because it's kind of the Nightland, according to the letters from the dating, is the earliest one. It's the one he wrote first, and um, it, you know he'd been. Uh, if you say if he was finished around like nineteen four, nineteen oh five, that makes him a very, very, you know. <laughs> He had four finished by then, and this was the mm-hmm. earliest, which meant you may be writing this, even you know, even years earlier. This is the work of a young adolescent man. That explains, uh, mm. yeah. And this is kind of why it's kind of this is weird, kind of because I, I think the the first half, um, probably the first, 
I mean, I have it on my Kindle, so it's roughly up to about 55%, nearly 60% of the book. It's this, I, I was just thoroughly, thoroughly absorbed. I mean, I was, I was, mm. I was taking my time with it. Cause it it's, I found reading it, you have to sort of, it takes you a bit to get into the rhythm of the language. Mm. But once you get into the rhythm of the language, it clips along really nicely and you get to know about the world that he sets out and his, you know, his journey to the, uh, the pyramid of the lesser redoubt is, it's just brilliant, brilliant stuff. And, um, how at once he rescues the maid and they set, start setting off back, suddenly the, the book seems to shift gear and, um, it doesn't really sort of find its, its rhythm proper again until about the 80% mark. Mm. <laughs> and there's a, there's in particular a whole huge section where they, um, essentially just rest on an island in the Black River. Mm-hmm. And they have this, this kind of, I wouldn't say lover's tussle, but this is, it's just a morass of romance. <laughs> and, um, and then this is, and, then, and the bit where the book really gets criticized for his kind of, his, uh, his gender politics go, takes place. Yeah. Uh, and I see that as very kind of like, I've had an adolescent writer that he was, his brain was in one mode and then true to form of, um, the adolescent mindset, something else distracted him, and then um, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he almost took, was writing a different kind of book, almost. It, it, it is, uh, it is, so, I, I saw it classified as horror, I think, on the Wikipedia entry. I don't think it's, there's almost no horror at all. I mean, it's it's got some uh, Lovecraftian-style um, uh, horrors in the background, and but you know, there's there's not even that much fear, really. It's more like curiosity and such. But what there definitely is is fantasy, and and the fantasy here is is like I I think you're right. It's adolescent fantasy mm. because um, not only is the dream woman, um, you know, everything you would want in a maid, but also uh, she's motherly as well, and she also. Uh, you know, is a damsel that needs to be rescued. And at the end of the book, uh, our hero who sets off in armor to, you know, to fight monsters and capture the princess and <laughs> uh, return to his home is honored like no other hero in millions of years has been honored, right? With a statue of him as a living young man uh, showing the honor and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, that 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 is a great deal of the appeal i think for a lot of people is it is such a classic adventure story um with the with the you know the hero setting off on a journey um fighting monsters capturing not capturing uh rescuing a beautiful young maiden returning home for honor and glory and and love and etc um it, it, you know it's if nothing, if not, none of the other elements in the story are fantastic, that itself is very, very <laughs> fantasy. But there is lots else in it that is fantastic. In fact, there's so much that um, it's almost hard to to know where to begin. The, the Wikipedia entry has, you know, you know, here's all the science going, uh, scientific elements and going on in there, but. I, I'm I'm just entranced by um, the landscape itself. I think is pretty amazing, and, and I had so many thoughts. While you know, they're he by himself, and when they are together, less so. You know, walking across this landscape and trying to figure out 
you know, how the ecology works. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if it does, but uh, maybe that helps the book, even though it should be something, something we're worried about. What, what, what did you think? Of, did you think about the ecology of this, this distant billion year future of Earth with no sun and no moon? Well, it's one of the, I think, in many respects, um, one of um, Hodgson's many great inspirations um, in this book. One is the fact that he sets it in an utterly far future, um, which instantly gives him a kind of get out of jail free card for you know because if it was in the near future, the book would date rapidly and it's kind of like you know it's kind of you're going oh, why are they using radio they could have tv you know <laughs> what i mean but it, it's so remote in the future and the technology is so different um it, it's beyond that kind of judgment it always retains its plausibility because this well it is literally a new dark age of uh, mm. science <laughs> and sorcery and kind of what he does describe it kind of i think he's just kind of he paints it enough not to paint it but to give you an idea of how it could work, but without painting himself into a corner, someone could pull him up on. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a scientifically minded man, Hodgson, and um, I, I think his really genius stroke in the setting was having his narrator be a 17th century gentleman. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's a interesting conceit because whenever there's a question as to how something works exactly, he has to relate it. Uh, it's almost as if he's not actually experiencing any of the things that are happening. He's just recalling the adventures mm. of someone else. Because nothing seems to happen, um, you know, like in a present tense at all. It's always like uh, past tense, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And so whenever there is a question, you know, how it relates to our days, you know, there's a lot of bringing it back to us. Whenever those relating it to our days, things happen. Because he's a 17th century guy, um, not even a 20th century or 19th century or 18th century guy, the the lack of knowledge is somehow makes it easier for us to swallow that, you know, he may not be relating it right. He doesn't, he doesn't know about electricity very much. Well, no, um, it, I think the terms he uses are very... Sort of well chosen. It's mm-hmm. kind of, it's kind of the earth, you know, the earth current. I mean, like, that's just it's a simple kind of thing, and the way you use it, you get the impression, right? They're, they're tapping into the, I don't know, the Earth's magnetic field, maybe, or, yeah. or, the, or you know, the electronosphere or the ionosphere to to draw their power, and uh, you know, they're obviously using geothermal energy, and mm-hmm. they've got these, you know. Um, systems of, you know, like, you know, of pipes and underground farms with artificial light that, gen- you know, and all the plants generate the oxygen that powers, <laughs> that goes into the pyramids and, um, you know, and the fact that I think it's found halfway through where you, you get kind of a bit of a backstory of kind of how some of the cataclysms that have occurred of how the earth was struck by a comet and, you know, you know, pierced the earth to the mantle effectively and mm-hmm. drained away an ocean, you know, and, uh, <laughs> Uh, and you, you know, as it goes on, you get an idea, more idea that the night land is in the, you know, it's not so much the surface of the earth, they're actually in a huge sort of crater. 
mm-hmm. on on the dying earth, and it's it's the fact that it is kind of it's not it's not like a, a hollow earth or a subterranean, but it's all they're that far down, and it's that dark. It might as well be, but the closer to the the geothermal energy of the earth, the planet's dying core, which is the last source for heat and light and power. And it's it's like oh yeah, that's really clever. That's that's very plausible, <laughs> and you know. Um, I, I I think kind of the way you lose to the fact that that they all we know that these technologies they've lost like the flying machines and they said mm-hmm. you know we the history book said we did have you know weapons that could fire a mighty distance but the knowledge <laughs> of them has been lost and you know so you kind of the way the way really I was and knowing kind of how scientific Hodgins and how kind of cunning his mind is from reading like his Kanaki stories, which where Kanaki is a thoroughly modern man who's really up on his scientific theories and thinking. And it's kind of, yeah, he, he's really thought this through to future-proof this story. To the extent now, even in the 21st century, you can read it and you can't sort of go, I got that wrong. Because he's not... Yeah, so- there's no obvious mistakes. Uh, uh, I yeah. mean, they're, 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 people uh, make make point you know that the sun will go out in that period of time we got plenty of time mm. um well he you know uh <laughs> when it comes to billions and billions of years i'm i'm not so worried about exactly how many billions of years in the future it is because uh it's so far away you know it, it, the earth is tidally locked to the the remnant of the sun mm-hmm. if the sun is even still there um there's a lot made of, uh, you know, him using Lord Kelvin's, uh, estimate of how suns will burn. And, you know, they start as a big hot sphere and they get cooler over time. Uh, well, that's not how it works. Exactly, right? Um, but it doesn't really matter because the, the setting is not, you know, in outer space exactly. It's, it's on this. Yeah. So this dying earth. So one of the things that freaked me out about halfway through, um, he starts talking about the trees and I'm like, trees, trees. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe, you, maybe you got some sort of, uh, lichens or some sort of something, um, you know, that can grow somewhere, but tree trees, I mean, to, to grow that much stem, you know, to fight other trees, to get more, uh, sunlight, you need actual sunlight, um, the Nightland is, if anything, dark. That's 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 the idea I'm getting. But um, uh, it's curious. I, I went and did a search uh, for moon, and the the moon's gone. Mm. I, I believe the moon is comple- completely gone. He talks about the moon quite a bit, but he's talking about it as in our day. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, and stars also are gone. There's no reference to stars being uh, in this in this night sky, and so it's almost it could be almost an underground world um, with a dome of rock above or something like that. We, we're not really clear, but uh, my assumption is that actually the, the other stars, just like our sun, has burned out. Right, all the other stars mm. have also burned out, which um, is one thing. So uh, I, I was thinking that maybe those trees are you know petrified you know billions of year old trees walking through a billion year old forest uh but there's a lot of megafauna running around as well out there right <laughs> so the ecosystem you know uh, i was reading in the comments of people trying to figure out how the ecosystem works and 
some people are saying, well, at the bottom of the ocean, actually, mostly what you have, even though there's no sunlight down there, is is predators eating other predators. Mm. Right? Um, they're all living off the remnants of of uh, the dead and dying things above them that fall down deep into the ocean. And given that it is set so deep into the future, um, and given how poor our understanding of ecosystems are, although you know we're we're a lot better than we used to be. We're still really shitty at studying how ecosystems and ecology works. Uh, I'll give them some slack there. But trees, I was like, well, maybe they're mushrooms or something. Well, this uh, is in, in, in kind of his, the immediate light, uh, nightland around the lesser we do He just had these moss bushes, mm-hmm. which you get the, the impression that there are the, these plants that have evolved. And obviously, their ancestors must be common mosses and lichens, but they have, you know, in millions of years in the future, they have adapted to be something bush-sized that can actually just, you know, absorb what light, live on what little light there is from the lava pits and the heat. And uh, what I found, where the uh, the area where the uh, the trees are, um, which is like near the, uh, on my handy map, it's called the Country of Seas and the Black River, um, he does mention that kind of the, the, it's brighter up there and the air's better. Mm. And the air's more rarefied, and I kind of thought, well, are these sort of, sort of, are they sort of trees that are actually just covered with mosses and lichens, sort of ancient petrified trees, but they look like they're blooming still because of this stuff up there that's, you know, is living off the, uh, whatever's in the air. Uh, it's one of, it's, it's, a, it's a curious, it's a curious sort of thing, but it's one of those, it's, uh, uh, when you're sort of this far into the future and things could have evolved, you think, oh, well, there's, there's moss bushes that are your base plant ecology. Maybe my not moss trees. <laughs> but certainly I got the impression, like, most of the uh, the, the wildlife, um, there seems to be like, two strains quite clearly, or three maybe, but there's, on one hand, you have things like the, uh, the spiders, the scorpion things, the big crabs, the mm-hmm. snakes... And like the rodents, which are kind of your proper fauna, uh, as we class it, of animals. But then you've got things like the other forearm men, the humped men, the great men, um, and some of the other sort of really big monsters, a big yellow thing that he fights. That these are kind of like, you know, really just monstrous mutations and the, and the giant giants. Slot. Yeah, yeah. And that they're kind of things that, you know, are just entirely predatory. Um, that you know are out of the natural order and are just uh, you know almost nearly bordering. Some seem to be bordering on supernatural. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, speaking things like the night hounds and the watchers. You get the impression these are kind of well, you just say these are unclean things that have uh, intruded into our world because of you know scientists in the past. Um, you know, damaged the fabric of reality and allowed these things to seep in. And mm-hmm. so you've got those kind of so they've got things that are like powers and proper supernatural monsters and the abhumans, the giants, the hump men, I, was, I sort of read as being, they're kind of um, betwixt the two. They're neither animal nor fully supernatural, but they're a, they're a, you know, a product of humans and animals being infected and mutated by these malign capital O outside forces. What do, what do you make of the Watchers? I, th- I think they're the, the, the most striking of the 
creatures that are out there. I mean, they're all they're approaching. Some of them are paused. They're 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 not called you know the monster of the northeast. They're called the watchers, but they're clearly they're monstrous. Mm. What, 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 it's such a striking image. And looking at the map, you know, they are converging on the on the last redoubt, the great redoubt, right? The last of the true humans left on the earth. They're slowly encroaching, slowly, slowly, uh, over the millions of years it takes them to make a step mm. or whatever. I mean, this is a power, this is part of the powerful imagery that, you know, you don't even see in, in something like Mordor or, um, any great fantasy epic. I've never seen anything as sort of menacingly powerful as these images. Have you, uh, what do you make of this? Um, uh, I mean, I've, I've read a lot about the monsters in the Nightland, because obviously Hodgson gives you hints, which people mm-hmm. have elaborated on, and um, I mean, I read one that's had the Watchers as this sort of gigantic life form that subsists on isotopes and has a very slow metabolism, and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. that's only interesting, but that's not the sense I get from them. I get them that these are almost... Um, Living graven images. They're giant eidolons of avatars of outside forces and the things operate on a cosmic time scale, which is why, you know, that's why they move so slowly is that, you mm-hmm. know, it's, um, that they're things that, uh, you know, uh, a millennia is a blink of an eye to in their kind of life cycle. Um, and they're more than just big, dumb predators and brutes. They are, so they are the literal huge pawns shaped out of the landscape itself of the powers of evil who you know, want to, you know, are going to snuff out and feast upon the souls of the last humans. And the fact is you have the, uh, the one watch that has the listening ear that vibrates and that when the ear is vibrating, it's kind of that alerts the other smaller evil powers and forces to what he's doing and sets them upon him. Um, no, it gives them a, 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 a you know they might be slow but they're not stupid they are they are intelligent and cognizant and you know they're like controlling intelligences. There's one that's is one of these that's nodding right. Mm, the thing that nods. <laughs> the thing that nods. So uh, I, I'm just thinking about the context. Uh, I mean, you've got this massive you know deep history into this world, but also the the future which doesn't look too happy um it's almost like a reflection of actually what the book's doing as well like you know the earth is going to be destroyed uh at some point by x right mm. and also it's going to be destroyed by something x right some point the earth uh the mantle and the the um the spinning core is going to stop spinning right uh, all the isotopes of uh radioactive material are going to stop um being around because there's not new ones being generated. And so we're going to lose our, uh, our electromagnetic protection, right? The shield of the earth is going to be gone. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Hodgson was aware of, you know, how that worked. Um, and then also the sun's going to burn out, right? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and we're also going to destroy ourselves with war and we're going to, uh, which Hodgson eventually did find out firsthand being exploded by an artillery shell in World War I. Um, we're going to all die, and 
if we don't die, we're going to be, uh, as a species, we're going to be mutated away from what we are, uh, uh, you know, these pure good beings that we are, strong of limb and sound of mind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all of these threats to humanity are out there, and it's almost like these are symbolized by these these slow-moving monsters slowly heading towards the last remaining people. It's like these these objects, these creatures, have been encroaching on us for millennia, and eons and eons of uh, encroachment mean they're right at our gate now. But still, it's going to be millions of years before they're even closer, and we're actually completely destroyed. And there's still a few things on our side, because a couple have been appear to have been neutralized. Mm. Uh, yeah, a, the watcher of the south, a huge shining dome has appeared before it, which has stopped its mo- its, its movement. Mm-hmm. And the watcher of the northeast has this shining halo above it. Um, I can't, there's another watcher that's the, uh, the light shining into one eye. And the people aren't sure whether it's being blinded and held back by the light, or the light is something it's projecting. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one thing I particularly like about his construction of mythology. And it's something where a lot of world builders and modern myth makers fail, is they forget the essential um, doubt that it is part of myth and legend. Mm-hmm. And um, I love the fact that, you know, our hero, um, you know, he recounts what he's learned, but at the same time, he's kind of saying, well, the books say this, but some say that, and mm-hmm. we didn't... This is what we were told, but we didn't really pay much attention to it. We considered, like you considered, the Greek myths, and <laughs> you know mm. what I mean. It's kind of this idea of kind of well, it's not definite. Whereas you know, these days you, we have a lot of you know fiction in movies, TV, and in books and comics that build a mythology, but everything's cast iron and been thought out. And it's this happened, mm. this happened, this happened, and one of the great joys of the nightland. This is kind of you know, your guess is as good as ours. Just be thankful you aren't living with it. <laughs> you know, living with this uncertainty and this really utterly bleak future of um, where literally it is the last of humanity in one building, surrounded by eternal darkness, fading power. And essentially, you know, from, from what the novel t- sort of tells us, it's kind of the great redoubt will only as last as long as the earth current. If that goes down... It won't be long before humanity degenerates and or is overrun by the forces from outside. And the second, the second doubt, uh, lesser doubt, has already had that happen, right? Yes, yeah. They're, they're, uh, I mean, you know, they, they, they ran into trouble when the, uh, the Earth current began to fade. It had faded for many years and their society had began to crumble. And it's kind of when the Earth current finally goes off, that's when panic reigns and the, the monsters get in. <laughs> He's got he's got uh, the gray arm gray metal armor. He's like a knight. He's got the discos, which uh, I want to talk more about later, uh, which uh, also seems to be I don't know if Hodgson ever used you know like spinning metal, uh, heavily weighted metal. Spins. <laughs> Anything that spins um, would be very hard to operate. <laughs> you try and poke it at an alien in it. Or whenever you're attacking, it would try and you know keep going in the direction that it's spinning. Uh, it wouldn't. So you did, it actually needs to be two spinning discs, right, <laughs> and going counter uh, counter to each other. 
Yes, that's right, yes. <laughs> but on the other hand, maybe, uh, you know, it's a billion years in the future, and the laws of physics uh, don't seem to be fully in effect here, <laughs> the way we think of it anyway, so I'll give him that. Uh, but it's a striking image. It's basically a guy with his weapon, uh, you know, a knight in shining armor with his sword. Um, the way the he talks to his his uh, new girlfriend, who's his old girlfriend, about the uh, the sword, or sorry, the viscose, is that uh, it's specially trained, you know, we're specially trained with them, and it's charged by the earth current, and uh, you don't, you, you know, it's bonded to me, so you can't really use it, um, and don't hold it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot of, a lot going on between him and his girlfriend about she's teasing him, and and then he has to slapper or uh whipper with some <laughs> he breaks off some twigs and starts whipping her shoulders every once in a while because she's being bad um this uh i think is uh, again about you know very very useful uh both he and the girlfriend are very immature in their attitudes towards uh you know what the proper behavior is because <laughs> I mean, this is childish, mostly. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of squabbling about who's wearing what mm-hmm. and who's doing what. And you're not <laughs> eating your pills. Yes, and because uh, the, the, I mean, it's, it's kind of it's one. Of, I mean, I, I do knock the romance in it, but I think there's some nice, very human and well-observed touches in the fact that at different stages that they're both. They're both so committed to each other that they're they're arguing over who gets to wear the protective clothes, right. and they're both they're both like you know trying to to sort of dishly not eat the pills so the other one won't starve should they run out. <laughs> yeah, <You know? laughs> I think that that's kind of it gives the relationship. I know it's a bit of a chore to wade through to read, but at its heart there is something real and human there beyond mm. the idealised romance because they're both quite young I mean our narrator in his future self is only a youth of 17 mm-hmm. and, and uh, the maid is not much older he's, well he's, he's a bit younger than him so it's kind of this sort of adolescent squabbling is a, there's a touch of realism to it I sort of mm-hmm. found beneath the uh, the kissing uh, <laughs> it's constant because <laughs> they can't do anything without a lot of kissing. That's true. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that the although it has the what I think is arguably called flaws uh, in these respects, I think that it's it it doesn't it's not ruinous and it it's at least in the version the audiobook version that I listened to, I, I believe it is also a bridge. I I think it's almost impossible to get the completely unabridged uh you know a million percent more kissing <laughs> version anymore because people just won't put up with it i think mm. um but uh it's it's redeemable and because it is a epic of adventure with basically just two characters um uh, you know, of the mil- 500 million people who live in the pyramid, they are not, you know, there's very few of them that are individually, um, there's nobody else who's named. And they're, you know, given titles, you know, the Master Monstruakin. Mm-hmm. My understanding is Monstruakin is like, those are the guys whose job it is to keep the telescopes warm at night or something. 
looking out at the 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 landscape and sending laser beams off or something. Also, um, as I read them, they're kind of like a, this, almost like a ruling, not switch ring, but a, sco- a ruling sort of scholar class. Is that the you know they? Well, they're at the, the pyramid, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they maintain the pyramid and they're on the technology, and but they're also the keepers of the history and. Uh, um, they're literally at the top of the pyramid. That's where the yeah, yeah. Are. And at the bottom of the pyramid, as usual, the farmers, <laughs> the peasants are at the bottom. Then mm. they're the vast majority. I mean, uh, he, he doesn't really explore this issue, but it's definitely in the in the uh, the the text. I mean, the pyramid goes so deep into the earth uh, that it's it's supposed to be almost eight miles high. Um, but it also extends deep into the earth. And as it gets deeper, it gets wider and wider. And those levels of farms get bigger and bigger. Even though they are farming, they, they, they I think this may be the, fir- one of the first, if not the first stories with pills for food. Uh, quite likely. I mean, I mean, certainly it's actually, I think it's probably the, the first proper dying earth story. I think you're right. Um, Although um, it is arguable also that, and I've heard it, I've seen it argued that this is the a sequel to the time machine, right? In at least in the sense that it's showing you a portion of the world as it will be when it is dying. I can see why people think that, but I think that's more kind of a fanish projection. <laughs> I think kind of. It, I think it, you know, the Nightland stands in its own terms because I mean Wells was only presumably drawing off the same kind of ideas um, that Hodgson was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, science was going. You know, guys, that sun ain't going to last forever. <laughs> and arguably, you know, both were inspired by you know Byron's poem, Lord Byron's poem, Darkness, which envisaged mm-hmm. a world where the sun had gone out. And there's a few other sort of like poems, and there's some satirical works that. That you know, imagine the end of time and the last human. But I think kind of, I mean, Wells is the the time machine. is the first actual proper story to kind of address it, kind of in any depth outside satire or philosophy or poetry. But you know, the the journey to the far future is just a brief part of a of the time machine. Um, it's true. It's, it's not. It's not the. It's, it's not the soul, soul for it's not even, it. it's far, it's not even this far, right? It's, no. It's, it's, it's maybe a quarter of the way to mm-hmm. where we are this, this story. It's, it, it, it's powerfully structured, like, it feels like the journey in, through Mordor, but I don't, I don't know if the, you know, Tolkien necessarily had read this at all, although C.S. Lewis apparently had. Well, if Lewis had, I, I think it's fair to, to guess that, t- that Tolkien would have been aware of it too. Hmm. Um, Seems as, like as they were both. Um, if he'd not read it, he'd certainly probably heard Lewis talking about it. So, so mm-hmm. they were, you know, part of the Inklings and you know, uh, close colleagues and, and friends. I mean, yeah, so the, I mean, I know House in the Bottom was published first, but if you go with um, Gafford's hypothesis, which, having read his article and the quotes and the letters, I do find very, very convincing, and certainly textually, I think it's convincing. That, you mm-hmm. know, it's to be written probably around the turn of the century. It's kind of he may have actually been writing this before the time machine had appeared, uh, and it's kind mm-hmm. of 
So, I mean, certainly this is the, fir- the first sort of fully-fledged Dying Earth story of where, you know, uh, that really, this really launches a subgenre. Um, I mean, you know, after this, you know, Clark Ashton Smith, who you adored this, he did Zothique, and then after that you get Jack Vance, who really mm-hmm. kind of brings the idea to a wider audience. Uh, but, you know, it's, you have similar things in The House on the Borderland, mm-hmm. but again, that's only, like the time travel, that's a picaresque journey through the ages. It's not the sole focus of, of the tale. <laughs> Whereas this, he, this, is, this is actually breathtaking, you know, uh, yeah. uh, in his scope and vision. Uh, but yeah, it, there's a similar love across time, though, in, uh, in the house in the borderland, isn't there? The, uh, is there? Um, there's the woman and the dog. The, but the woman is his sister. Um... And the, 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 I mean the the when the dog dying and turning to ash, I mean that's that's really heartbreaking. But it's not you know he's not he's not petting the dog constantly either. He just likes the dog. <laughs> no, but you know, it's that kind of the idea of the, that the human emotion played out against the, a story across a backdrop of innumerable eons of uh, that's true. Uh, you know, giving you that sort of focus to stop it just being like you know. The, the last reel of 2001 and a pretty light show. Mm, yeah, that's that that seems to be, you know, yeah, that's the visual equivalent of of that journey uh to the end of the universe or deep future or far off whatever. Um now, you know, we talked about chapter 1 a little bit. Uh and one of the things I was reading on the on the big uh Nightlands website um dot uh, co dot uk i guess it is um was why, why you should read chapter one and in reading that uh explanation of why you should read chapter one i'm like holy crap you totally should read chapter one mm, definitely <laughs> uh, because it is setting up a couple of things um that will cast a different light over the entire book and it totally does mm-hmm. so one of the things that it sets up is that whenever uh, our hero in the 17th century meets his girlfriend uh, in the 17th century. Um, it's at night. Yes. Every time. Mm. It, either it, at, at dusk or deep into the evening or, uh, you know, they, they never meet during the day. Um, when they are out in the woods, they get attacked. By some footpads or something, right? Yes, that's right, yeah. Mm. And he's always saying, you know, uh, boarhounds, boarhounds. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I assume is a kind of hound that I'm not familiar with, you know, pig hound. But uh, pigs were big uh, la- Large hunting dogs that they used to hunt boars originally. Right. The boarhounds, yes. But it, just thinking of pigs makes me think of the house on the borderlands as well. <laughs> those are the bad guys, right? Mm-hmm. Um and then uh she dies. Um she dies in childbirth. Uh and then um then this the crazy stuff happens, right? He starts getting these visions of a distant future in which he's mm-hmm. reunited with his lo- lost love. And he meets her again in the darkness of the night land. And she dies. <laughs> oh, but it's all a, it's all a mistake. She's alive again, and they lived happily ever after. And it's like, holy crap! That you just set it up all as you know. This guy's gone crazy. 
Um, none of this with 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 that document, you know, that we're saying it's it doesn't say at the beginning, which it does have as a as a framing sequence in the House on the Borderlands, right? Is that they found this book, and this book is a recounting of of one guy going crazy in the house, or maybe he's not going crazy. <laughs> um, but in any case, we'll leave it with you to decide. Um, in this document, we've got a guy's journal about his actual life and then his perceptions of his future life. Uh, somehow he's perceiving his reincarnation uh, later on, I, I think, uh, or s- something like that. Yeah, he's saying that he he and she is, are both actually reincarnated. Yes, yes. And that uh, that's how he knows her and she knows him. You know, he, she even says, you know, she called me by my pet name, which we never learn. Um, and I called her Murdath, even though that's not the name uh, she has in this world. And it was good. And so that that doubt that's set up by that first chapter is incredibly powerful. I think. Well, absolutely. This is how you, it puts a complexion on the entire novel. It was kind of, well, is this just the, uh, the product of a, a, a of a nervous breakdown? <laughs> Effectively. Of a <laughs> it's a manic sort of mm. wish fulfillment. And in the original publication of the cover of, um, of the book, it has a dust jacket with the 17th century guy writing furiously while a ghost of a lady looks over him. Mm. Um, and I think that that, I mean, most of the focus for people when they're doing art for this Nightland, it has nothing to do with the 17th century guy, right? It's all about the... Uh, picturing this, the hero dressed in his armor, carrying the discos, the pyramids, some of the monsters. Mm. Right? It's, there's no love for the fact that this is all told from the pen of a 17th century guy whose wife is dead. Rapidly writing this massive <laughs> tome deep into the night, hoping that it's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's the feeling I get from it, especially, you know, and after reading that, pointing to, you know, why chapter one is so important. Definitely. I think it's interesting that that early cover is, uh, does give you a very different, I think that sort of does set up the sort of found footageness mm-hmm. of the novel a lot better than the, uh, um, I mean, the, the later covers. I mean, kind of, I remember when I did my first attempt at reading it, I just got the paperback. It was this lovely p- uh, Panther edition that shows just like uh, a lovely landscape with a great pyramid. And I was reading this first chapter, going, well, so is this future, is it sort of like a uh, model on the 17th century? Like, oh, yeah. no, this is the 17th century. He's not got there. He's not in the Nightland yet. <laughs> Murdath is a funny name, too. I've never heard of anybody named Murdath, have you? No, I mean, I'm assuming that must be... Invention, either that or obscurely, uh, uh, obscurely biblical. <laughs> it has that sort of ring of uh, an Old Testament. Uh, it, that, it's very not uh, 17th century sort of name, as far as I can tell. And nanny is also not a. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you know nanny. Mm. 
Um, I don't know. Uh, there's a there's a lot going on. We talked about the discos a little bit. We talked about the powdered f- food, uh, the, uh, the the tablets, which uh, also carries powdered water, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they've got the telepathy. Um, he's always talking about his brain elements. Mm. Uh, or mind elements, or brain or mind elements, I can't remember. Uh, in any case, um, he can, he telepathically communicates with this lady in the other tower and says, oh, well, come rescue me. And so he's off on his adventure. Um, and it seems that, uh, other people also have something like this, the night hearing, which, uh, made me think of, uh, like bats, like they can see in the dark. Well, that's what I, when he first mentioned, that's what I thought it was going to be until I, I realized it was kind of this, what, you know, later writers would have called like telepathy. <laughs> hmm. And then, uh, in the other thing that I didn't key, key into this exactly, but it fits into a theory I want to pose to you, which I think is awesomely hilarious and completely wrong. <laughs> um, the, uh, it says that there's also this, the master word. Yes. Right? So there's a lot of masters in this. There's a master doctor. There's the master Mountstruakin. Mm. Um, there's a lot of masters going on. But the master word, it says, uh, is a kind of authentication so that you can know that the, the message that you're receiving from out in the, the nightland is not a false message. It's not a trick. It's mm. not somebody spoofing your email or something, right? It's <laughs> an actual, uh, correct authentic message and some uh, somebody's pointed out that that's like public key cryptography right yes, got this yeah way of communicating where we know that if you've got this and you've got that then you can unlock it and it's it's authentic uh which is i i think you know he's not thinking about computers exactly um in writing this book but it got me thinking uh actually i was thinking about it as soon as uh, i heard the word discos now, I, first I thought discos, like 1970s, <laughs> but uh, once the object is described a little bit more, um, I started thinking that this is um, a 17th century man who somehow got a hold of a projector and some reels of the original Tron, <laughs> describing <laughs> the plot of Tron, because they're living in a nightland. Uh, they're eating powdered food and water. Uh, they're, uh, using discos to do battle with, uh, great monsterish, uh, spaceship beings that he can't describe as spaceships exactly. Um, and it's, it's kind of like Tron where, you know, the computer's just running on a trickle of energy because, uh, the, you know, most of the spaceships don't work anymore. And, <laughs> I mean, it, it really is almost as, if you remember the plot of Tron as well, there's a guy, he's living his life, mm-hmm. right? And then he gets zapped into the computer. Yes. And <laughs> there's an avatar of everybody he knows in there, right? And the battle that's fought in, in Tron is also the battle that is being fought outside. It, very cleverly, I, I don't think anybody noticed this uh, either, um, that the Lego movie has the exact same plot. Uh, yes, that's or true, least, actually. <laughs> it's got the same, you know, 
everything that's down here is reflected out in the real world. Uh, there's a Phil K. Dick story called Small Town that does the same thing, right? Where the guy recreates uh, the town he lives in in the basement, and anything that he does in the in the basement is reflected in the real world, and people can be transferred between one and the other. Um, it, it, there, there's a power to what's going. I, I remember it at the time when I saw Tron. I was like, "Wow, this is amazing!" It's about what goes on inside computers. And it also made me think in reflecting on this, there's some crazy um, futurist who has the idea that we're all going to live again in a simulated reality uh, in distant future. What's the yeah, Frank, name? That Frank Tipler. Frank yeah, okay. Tipler, yeah. Mm. Uh, somebody, so somebody, John, John Barrow like. as well. So. Yeah, so we're all going to be rebooted uh, into an exact copy of our own world. We're going to have our own bodies back, and we're going to be able to live again and uh, re- reincarnated in in a computer program. It's going to be so um, so realistic that we won't notice that we're in the computer program. In fact, we might be in it right now. <laughs> How can we tell, right? Um, the difference there is uh, in this Nightland, he, I mean, the other thing is I was thinking is it's just the traditional uh, weird story that it's, it's a dreamland, right? It's the, it's the hypnagogic uh, land that you go to at night and all the things that he wishes to have happen do happen. Uh, not as good as the Tron theory but <laughs> <laughs> if you if you do start doing art for it you can totally do it as a tron version of uh, <laughs> they've got the armor they've got the discs got the uh the flying <laughs> things in the pyramids and <laughs> it works <laughs> that's certainly a novel theory <laughs> What's oh, what I think is so funny is that because um, because uh, it's written in, or published in 1912, um, it seems unlikely that this theory is is plausible. But I think the fact that it it has at least um, <laughs> a hint of merit is because Hodgson is so good at, as you say, you know, setting it up so that we are doing most of the work of thinking about what this world is like. You know, what are those watchers? Why uh, why does everything get reflected uh, in the way it does? Is it because he's, he's you know, had a break with reality? He, is this all wish fulfillment? You know, the reflection that we see, the Great Pyramid and the Lesser Pyramid, the uh, lesser life and the great life, you know, mm. those uh, images, you know, the the lack of specificity in in why these things have all been going that way. What's going on in the House of Silence? Uh, who are those people? The silent ones. The, yeah. Mm. So why did, you know why is that that uh, nodder nodding? <laughs> Who's he agreeing with? Uh, well, it's one of the, I find kind of interesting when I look back at the Nightland is it's kind of 
uh, the the landscape around the uh, like the pyramid of the Great Redoubt um, seems to be a focus for various powers and energies. That so you have the mysterious House of Silence, the the road where the Silent Ones walk, um, the country from where comes dreadful laughter. Yeah, uh, and it's kind of it's like yeah, the impression it's all closing in. Uh, but when he goes on his journey, he actually gets. He go, you know, he follows his instincts to go far to the north, and just looking at my map, you know, he follows, goes down a huge slope into a huge, this, you know, massive gorge, and then you get to the, the forest country where it seems to be, it's still fraught with dangers. You have the humpback men and great monstrous flying birds, and uh, in the the tunneled part of the gorge at the other end where. It seems that it has been completely, it is properly underground practically, where the mountains have grown over into each other. You have these monstrous black slug creatures. That mm-hmm. always seems like, feels like to me, it feels a lot more sort of kind of natural. Uh, the hazards mm-hmm. there are more kind of, it's just wilderness hazards, shall we say. Whereas mm-hmm. things like the House of Silence is, <laughs> is clearly a capital E, evil, mysterious mm-hmm. force that's intruding. And likewise, when he gets around where the uh, lesser redoubt is, you have uh, the great uh, rift full of fire where you can see this sort of mysterious faces forming. And, you know, they, to a lesser extent, have attracted these cosmic powers that are going, ah, last of humanity licks lips, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) sort of leering in at them. Um, I mean, it's it's full of so many just sort of, I say these fascinating things. I mean, bearing in mind kind of, um, the supposed uh, writing order, where this, the Nightland published last, written first. I, I did sort of wonder: is the House of Silence the actual house of the border on the borderland? I, I had that exact same thing in my <laughs> mind it, it, because there is a you know great plan. There, there's an arena right mm. that goes in that place, and there are all these hor- horrifying figures on the outskirts of that arena looking at. The, looking at the house and him floating above the the uh, surface of the of the arena. Mm. Uh, if you look at the map, it's not exactly like that. It's not an arena, you know. It's not round, but it is flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is this house, um, and I think it, you know it's amazing to me that this guy, you know, didn't start off as a you know a youth. Uh, well, I guess he. He did start writing pretty young. He just didn't live that long. Mm. But it's just he's he's an amazing power of a writer, and people don't know about him in the way. Like uh, one of the things you know in reading the Nightlands website, you know, there is a there are a number of books that are coming out retellings of this, mm. and there's uh, you know anthologies of s- stories set in the Nightland. And those, it feels to me like if this guy had lived a bit longer and written some more stuff, um, he would be up there with Lovecraft and totally be uh, as well known. I mean, he did write a, a fair amount, but not as much uh, as far as I can tell. And uh, being cut, cut short even sooner, he's got the power of, of Lovecraft, I think. Well, I think it's 
the reason we think we're still aware of Hodgson to a, a certain degree, if not a large degree, um, is the fact that Lovecraft, I mean, Lovecraft lived and worked pretty much, you know, in obscurity and just scraped a living doing what he did. Although it's fair to say he did have a fan base in the pulps. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was only after his death, you know, August Derleth, you know, formed Arkham House to, you know, to make, you know, put Lovecraft into print book form, in, you know, into a proper book that, rather than a disposable magazine, that, that he gained the huge kind of following that he's still gaining to this day. Mm-hmm. But it's the fact that, um, you know, Arkham House branched out to other authors and they published some Hodgson uh, and many others, mainly because Lovecraft liked them. Mm-hmm. And certainly if you look even, uh, even, even editions today, you'll find of Hodgson's work that it's got like a strap line, which is either usually a quote from Lovecraft mm-hmm. endorsing it, you know, you know, and it's kind of, um, one that the, the, an unrecognized part of Lovecraft's sort of legacy is the fact that he, he was so, he was a fan and he wrote mm-hmm. enthusiastically about what, what he liked and, you know, there's countless editions of, of authors who might, you know, probably would have been forgotten, but stayed in print because, you know, they could be, you know, the Lovecraft Association was, was strong enough to, <laughs> to, you know, to, to keep, get their works back into book form. I mean, I've, I've got a couple of editions of Hodgson's work where the H.P. Lovecraft quote and H.P. Lovecraft name is more prominent than the book title or Hodgson's, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but that's a, and, you know, that's obviously bad for Hodgson, but it's meant, you know, Gen- countless generations keep discovering House on the Borderland, which is more accessible, and the Karnaki stories, and, you know, to a lesser extent, the Nightland, and I think the Nightland does have this reputation of being, oh, that's the really long, difficult one, and people sort of are, well, you know, I'll read them, you know, House on the Borderland, you can read comfortably, you know, in an afternoon and an evening, you know, it's a... I think you need to be a mature reader to appreciate this because I, I I would definitely not have put up with it when I was younger. I I mean I I think I would have been able to do House in the Borderland a lot younger. Mm. But this is uh, you know it requires sort of a a patience that you don't have as a, you know a youth. Um, I'm seeing my students how they. They react to things. They they're much more impatient than I am you know, <laughs> with storytelling, and basically you have to get it all out there on the screen right up front. Um, put them, you know, and have these tropes shown immediately so that everybody knows what's going on and how how it's all going to play out. Um, and make it simple, right? Um, this is you know it, it is artificial in a in a very weird way. I mean. The way it's described, you know, why he, you know, he wrote this this book, and then he published some uh, U.S. version called The Dream of X, which apparently is much shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the explanation there is that he wanted to secure his copyright. I've, I've seen this endlessly that people are saying he wants to secure his copyright, wants to secure his copyright. He's very worried about copyright. Um, <laughs> I don't think that this book. Uh, is about copyright and making lots of money. I mean, maybe that's how it was when he actually published it, but this is not really a commercial book as far as I can <laughs> see at all. I mean, maybe he's hoping to make some commercial. It, it feels more like a Lovecraft. Uh, you know, Lovecraft has a story like this. What's the uh, Shadow Out of Time, right? Yes, yeah. 
where a person's projected into an is it in the far future another body alien body and that mm. person thrown back into his body or that thing's thrown back into his body or something like that yeah, it's it's a mind swap through time of a uh... right so uh, what's so cool about lovecraft is that he was absolutely uninterested i mean fundamentally fundamentally he's uninterested in whether uh, his stuff would be commercially saleable. The mm. thing is, he did have this commercial concern because he, he was trying to make a living at it, uh, but he wasn't trying hard enough, obviously, because <laughs> um, he did a terrible job <laughs> making a living at it. But because he was so pure in his his um, knowing how he had it have to be, mm. it is timeless and does not have a the commercial uh, aspect that, you know, like I, I read a lot of writers and some of them, you know, you say, okay, this book he's writing because he's trying to get enough words out this month so he can pay his rent check. It's going to be just like all the other ones that sell to this magazine. And it'll be, it'll be good, good and gone. Uh, and then every once in a while they'll write a great piece of fiction that has nothing to do with being a great commercial success or not. It's just a really good story. Um, and well, well, uh, well coming from a true place. This feels more like, you know, somebody's, somebody's, uh, pet project rather than, uh, you know, it's a, it's a artwork rather than a, uh, commercial, uh, we're going to capture the audience. You know, <laughs> if, if you submitted this to your agent today, he would not. He would not. He might say, "Good job on the length, making it really long. Good job." But we got to change that 17th century narrator to a 21st century guy. Well, this is it. I mean, I think kind of going back to the Gaffer had a, a hypothesis that uh, it does make a lot of sense that this would be the first novel. You know, you write and you just you 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 know you just let rip. You mm. know, he had no no thought of kind of publication of will this be popular. Is is saleable. It was that pure. I've got this story I want to write, mm. and it it'll take as long as it takes. Screw you all. <laughs> you know, yep. I, 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 I'm going to have as much kissing as I want. Yep. <laughs> this is his. This is. I'm telling my story. You know, and um, it's kind of you know later in his career. I mean, you know, Thomas Carnacki, one of mm. his great creation. I mean, that was written. Hodgson so thinking, well, I, I want to make some money at this writing game and w- what's popular. And someone says, well, you know, detectives are popular and uh, a psychic detective, you know, uh, there's been a few of those. And that's what, you know, fired his imagination. And he came up with this, you know, a wonderful character and a wonderful set of set of stories that, um, you know, actually, I think, although they were conceived to be derivative, you know, they were with a market in mind. I think they do actually, the Kanaki stories surpass a lot of the occult detectives that he was kind of cashing in on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because he has this wonderful, you know, imagination and energy to his writing. And it's kind of, so from, for him to have written these really sort of pacey and imaginative sort of tales, like the Kanaki ones, and then go to this kind of, um, mad adolescent, in a good way, I should say, uh, kind of a very like prog rock. It's a three, it's a, it's a three disc set, you know, with a fold out oh, gatefold yeah. sleeve, you know what I mean? It's kind of, yeah. um, 
this is this is the kind of book you either concept you, album. Yeah, this is the kind of book you you'd write either, um, say as as a young man who doesn't give a stuff about the market. You write it for the pure art and for the pure the the burning of creativity of the story. Or the only other scenario I can see you'd write this is where you'd had an awful lot of success and you are coked out of your mind and no one will tell you stop. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't think in kind of in the arc of sort of creativity and from my observation of how other writers and directors and musicians and artists sort of how they operate, you wouldn't get something that's so this is so massive and it is self-indulgent, but self-indulgent doesn't necessarily mean bad. You know, I, I think I mean I like a lot of huge, overblown things. I think it, mm-hmm. they, when they work, they're amazing. Often they don't, but you know, when they pull it off, it, it's great. And I, I think you'd either for Hodgson to have written this is this to be his last novel. I think this would be it would have to be sitting on a massive, you know, sort of massive sort of H.G. Wells sort of style. Best string of bestsellers to suddenly go right. What I really need is a 500-page novel t- told in um, cod 17th-century language that's completely <laughs> off the planet that no one's read the like of this before. Uh, and you know, I don't, I don't, I don't buy that. I see this being a young man working kind of. I'm right. I'm going to write a book. I've got this story mm-hmm. and with no conception of sort of market or commercialism even creeping near it. So, you know, from the letters Gafford has, it seems, you know, he'd written four books and, and it's only then he started, decided to try and start selling them, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. He'd written, you know, to, to amuse him, you know, for his own edification, his own amusement and, and then got, you know, after having written a fair bit, actually thought, well, actually, I think I'm pretty good. Let's, let's try and make a career and let's try and sell this and, I don't I don't know how how popular he was uh as a writer in his time but I think uh I I've only read the two novels um The House on the Borderland and this one and um, there's a, there's one you mentioned uh Ghost Pirates is that one called Yeah I mean that's kind of I mean Hodgson he's, he's you know he's famous for his weird fiction but he was you know he was a he, you know, he, was, he ran off to uh, join the Merchant Navy as a lad, and he kind of has his whole other strand of sort of nautical fiction, mm-hmm. and, um, and kind of these two other these two other novels, the Ghost Pirates and the Boats of Boats of Glen Garry. Yeah, I, I have read that one yeah. or part of it, anyway. Yeah. That's where they kind of you know it overlaps, and it, it comes up in a few of his other in some of his short stories mm-hmm. as well. Um, one of his most famous short stories, which I think is absolutely uh, a cracker, The Voice in the Night. Oh, yeah. Um, which is very you, creepy. Very, very creepy. creepy isn't it? Horrible. And, and also romantic, too. Yeah. But also, I mean, that's also is Hodgson breaking new ground because that's an infection story. Mm hmm. probably one of the early infection stories. Yeah, it's uh, body horror. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I. I mean, you know, you kind of. And he wrote kind of. These the sea stories because they'd be popular, you know what I mean. It's kind of I think if he's writing this to be popular, it'd be in the night boat, maybe. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Although I I wouldn't mind reading that story. Um, a uh, set a, set in another part of the earth uh, where there's still a sea and there's a mm. ship that's giant uh, arc. That'd be uh, cool. That'd be cool. Deep down, <laughs> in the, in the sea monsters everywhere. <laughs> I think, Mr. Jim Moon, you should uh, you should uh, 
pick up a 17th century feathered pen and, <laughs> and start working on it and say, I just found this. It was in an old trunk. <laughs> that could work. That could work. I think it could. Mm. I mean, the more I read of Hodgson, the more it's kind of I am sort of fascinated by the man and the fact that I know he's kind of in the right in the you know the pantheons of sort of weird fiction and uh, and genre fiction. He's seen as this kind of like top of the second division kind of figure that you know he's kind of he's mm. he's outshone by the you know your Wellses, your Doyles, your Lovecrafts, your Aston Smiths. Mm. But you know when you sort of dig into it, you find he's he's been right. He was writing this kind of stuff. You know, kind of in got there first. <laughs> but his, he also his life is cut short. Whereas mm. you know, Lovecraft, I mean, he had a pretty good run. Mm. I mean, nineteen eighteen to you know, in almost twenty years, mm. right? Almost. Yeah, yeah. And I think Hodgson is not that long. I think he started. Um, he was he was basically done by the start of the war. Yeah. And, Dies in 1918. Um, there's, I'm just trying to think if there is any. You know, there's been subsequent publications of unpublished stuff, but I, you know, I think his, that, his first short story was 1904. Yeah. Um. So we're looking at like eight, nine years of of uh, of a of a career. That's nothing compared to uh, Clark Ashton Smith had a much longer run than that. Well, um, that's it. And, Doyle. Uh, hell, that, that guy had years and years and mm. years of writing. But there's, I, I think there's something to this idea that, you know, the way that the people have gone with Lovecraft and, you know, start started writing their own stuff. Um, I think that, you know, the starts of that we were seeing with, with Hodgson, the, the, this John C. Wright's written some story set in the Nightland and, uh, uh, according to the reviews on the, the Nightland web- website, uh, they are very, very good stories. Mm. Uh, and Greg Bear also apparently has written some homages to um, the Nightlands. And I'd be curious to read those because I do like Greg Bear's writing style, even though he's not as clear as I would prefer some people be. <laughs> I think what Hodgson kind of has lacked now, I'm sort of amazed it's never really happened, There's, if not just... No one's had a crack at turning, say, the night any of his books into into movies or screen adaptations. Oh, well, well, there I is mean, well, <laughs> <laughs> I know mean, kind of Lovecraft hasn't been terribly well served in that regard yet, but it's kind of all the kind of sort of attempts to bring his work to the screen have, you know, the the I mean, they may be shittier adaptations, but they have brought the Lovecraft name into wider prominence. Mm-hmm. And I'm so I'm amazed, kind of in the golden kind of age of TV detectives and adventurers, like the 70s, that no one did a, a Karnaki TV series. There was one one episode of a Karnaki story in yes, uh, the Bibles of Sherlock Holmes mm, with Donald Pleasance as Karnaki, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which is which is cracking. It's kind of all oh, these had worked so well, mm-hmm. um, but you know it's kind of I mean the night the Nightland it kind of. Um, I'm surprised no one sees on it as a movie because it's kind of it's public domain. Well, it's it's, it's an archetypal story. Mm-hmm. You've got you know love heroes monsters, and the fact that it um it's got a great it's, plot. It's, it's, it's all in the darkness. It saves you a fortune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, budget wise, I mean, it's, you don't. I know it's kind of epic scale, and um, 
but you, you know you, you could do a lot with a little to bring the nightland to the screen it's got a, it's got all the romance that the girls will want to go see mm-hmm. the, with it's got big giant slug battles uh it's got you know a a, a ripping chainsaw style weapon and armor and giant pyramids and all that stuff it's it, it, i mean there's no dialogue to to, to map over I mean, you don't have to have the guy be, you know, 17th century. But um, it, in thinking about that, um, it makes me think of all the subsequent stuff uh, or, uh, you know, contemporaneous stuff that was being written, like um, uh, Princess of Mars. I mean, mm. it has that feel of a Princess of Mars, even though Princess of Mars is way more accessible. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, that is really easy to read that book. <laughs> um this it has the same story basically you know guy living his life then uh suddenly poof he's not living his life anymore he's living an alternate l- version of his life uh on a faraway place or time and uh saving the princess and uh fighting giant monsters and being a hero very much so actually <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Hodgson says, I mean, the thing is, he, uh, he's also, he also kind of um, out-Howard's Robert E. Howard as well. Uh-huh. Um, because, you know, like Howard wrote, was very into this idea of, this idea of the, the nobility of masculinity. and um, mm-hmm. uh, Where, you know, Hodgson, he, he has this kind of, as some critics call like kind of, his hero, his unnamed hero in the Nightland is this kind of, Male archetype. Mm-hmm. He's strong, he's wise, he's, you know, and it's also, he does, Hodgson does point, it's not just about being strong, it's about, you know, being a, a man of integrity and honour and being mm-hmm. wise and, and cautious and thinking things through, not just the muscle power. But, you know, you know as, as a man, you know, Hodgson was, you know, one of his sidelines was, he was, you know, the early champions of body culture and bodybuilding. And mm-hmm. I know if I ever, you know, post a, a photo, one of the photos of Hodgson, um, on my web pages. You can guarantee, um, some of my, uh, lady listeners and readers will remark on what a hottie he is. Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, I mean, he's, he's the only weird fiction writer who could be a pinup. I mean, he was a good looking <laughs> fellow, was Mr. Hodgson. And yeah, he had a rip roaring life that, you know, a Hodgson biopic would be quite something, you know. He runs away to sea, he's a war hero, he outfoxes Houdini. I mean, you know. And gets killed in, in uh. Yeah, I in mean, he, 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 you know, his life, he's like one of his stories. <laughs> well, I think we're, we're pretty much done. What do you think? I think that's pretty wraps it, wraps it up until I've. Yep. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.